This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Ron Stodgill discusses his new book, Where Everybody Looks Like Me, at the crossroads of America's black colleges and culture. Then PW senior news editor Calvin Reed explains why ebook subscription services are struggling. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. You've got a, the the number one book at the top of your list there. Yes, the, the yes. best-selling book on our list overall this week. What and, you got there? And it's not surprising. It's Mindy Kaling with about thirty-seven thousand copies sold this week. Very impressive. Very, yeah. And it's kind of interesting. Her first book came out in 2011. It was called Is Everyone Hanging Out uh, Without Me? And Other Concerns, book of uh, humorous essays. And this is before she got her own show. And this book debuted with almost 12,000 sold in hardcover, which was still pretty respectable. Mm -hmm. It went on to sell 116,000 in hardcover. And uh, the paperback came out in 2012, before the show premiered. And now it's up to 518,000. So it's... um, it's all selling pretty well. Yeah. So uh, what's the title of this new book? Uh, it's called Why Not Me? Well, why why not her indeed? I, with, with, uh, with her, the number one spot. Right. Exactly. And so moving down a little bit, uh, number four is Killing the Messenger, the right-wing plot to derail Hillary and hijack your government by David Brock. We see in a review the quote, unquote, vast right-wing conspiracy to destroy Hillary Clinton is back, according to this trenchant uh, jacuzzi by apostate who used to belong to it. And this is at number four, so it's getting a lot of attention. Uh, number 11, Fast Girl, A Life Spent Running from Madness. We don't have a review of this, but this is the former uh, middle-distance Olympic runner and high-end escort, speaks out for the first time about her battle with mental illness. So that's um, reaching a lot of people at number 11. A personal favorite of mine, uh, number 12, this is from Mary Carr, The Art of Memoir. She, of course, uh, was known for Liars Club and three other uh, narrative nonfiction memoirs. Uh, she teaches up at Syracuse. And this is her own writing course in a book. So this is her lectures on uh, guides to uh, to writing memoir. And um, it's just as compelling as her, uh, as her own work, as her own uh, uh, memoir. So it's really good read number 12 and we gave that a starred review we gave that a starred review exactly we say a car lends her characteristic trueness and eunice to the subject of writing memoirs wisely and quite often humorously guiding readers in their understanding and experience of the art so sounds great and then we have a couple of cookbooks on the list uh this one one of them is all the way up at number six from Thomas Nelson Publishers. It's called Southern Roots, Secret Recipes from the Best Down-Home Joints in the South. And uh, this is where Ben Vaughn takes readers throughout the South. What his uh, selection of the best restaurants could be the Mississippi Delta, through New Orleans, through Decatur, Georgia. And he's going through all these diners and restaurants and pulling out the best restaurants, uh, the best recipes, and presenting them here. Uh, and that's at number six. And at number 29, 
nine, we have Red Rocker Sammy Hagar, and uh, he's written a couple books before. This is his cookbook, Are We Having Any Fun Yet? The F- Cooking and Partying Handbook. And um, he's been a New York Times bestseller for his previous books, and this is showing up at number 29. So. I would not have expected Sammy Hagar to write a cookbook. He owns a uh, tequila distillery, Cabo Wabo, and this is kind of coming out of the whole Cabo Wabo lifestyle. It's I actually see. a very good tequila. Uh, so. <laughs> good to know. Learn something new every day. Well, and what about we have in fiction? Well, over in fiction, um, we don't have anything new in the top six. Those are all books that we've uh, seen before. Uh, one... Uh, Interesting note is that J.D. Robb's Devoted in Death, which was down at number 14 last week, its first week on the list, has jumped up to number three. Um, So that first week was a little slow, and then things have really picked up there. So our first debut on the list is number seven, The Scam. Uh, This is the fourth book in the Fox and O'Hare series by Janet Ivanovich, writing with Lee Goldberg. And this is uh, one of those books for fans of scams and con artists and uh, kind of James Bondian intrigue. Um, Fox and O'Hare are uh, supposedly a con man and the FBI agent chasing him. But in fact, he's really working for the FBI and the two of them are going undercover to catch some crooks. And this one has a sort of Casino Royale vibe. They've got to pose as high stakes gamblers, which means you get to visit all the fancy places and enjoy all the fancy things. So uh, that one's at number seven on our list, our hardcover fiction list. Number eight, The End Game by Catherine Coulter and J.T. Ellison. Uh, This is, we called it intense and captivating. We gave it a starred review. It's the third novel of The Brit in the FBI, and uh, it pits a couple of FBI agents against celebrants of Earth, a small terrorist group whose goal is to eliminate oil imports from the Middle East. So it's got that eco-terrorist theme with a lot of modern interest and uh, we say that the relationship between the two agents leaves much room for developments in future installments of this excellent suspense series at number nine we have another starred book fates and furies by lauren groff uh, we say it has a swirling miasma of language, plot, and Greek mythology as Groff weaves a fierce and gripping tale of true love gone asunder. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a, a fable-like story of, of a marriage that uh, spans 24 years, almost a quarter century, and uh, is told first from the story of the husband and then from the story of the wife. Uh, and we say it's just an, an intoxicating elixir of a book. So Fantastic. sounds like a great deal of fun. Yeah. Uh, moving down the list a little bit, uh, at number 16, we have one year after by William Forstian. Uh, this is the stirring sequel to one second after, which came out six years ago in 2009. Uh, and, uh, the premise of the original book was that EMP weapons, electromagnetic pulse weapons, destroyed nearly all electronic equipment in the continental U.S. Uh, so that's uh, quite quite dramatic, uh, apocalyptic scenario. And this takes place a couple of years later, after the initial violence and starvation is passed, and uh, now people have to reckon with what comes next, how to rebuild the world. And uh, we say readers should be prepared for some heavy-handed political commentary, but that's not really a surprise given that Forstian has co-authored books with Newt Gingrich, so ah. uh, oh, for which he is perhaps best known. Um, right. They've written a couple of historical novels together, so um, that right. one is on the list at uh, number 16. 
And there's more politics, always more politics. Number 20 is the the book Patriot, an Alex Hawk novel by Ted Bell. Um, we say this one is fast-paced. It involves a secret mission in Cuba with an MI6 agent uh, who is also the sixth richest man in England. So there's that James Bond vibe right. again. Right. Um, and his pal Stokely Jones, who's a former Navy SEAL. And uh, we say that Bell is better than any writer in the thriller genre at mashing up old-fashioned boys' adventure with modern military action. That's at number 20. And finally, I just wanted to note down at number 30, uh, a personal favorite of mine, Step Aside Pops by Kate Beaton. It's rare to see a comics book uh, make it onto the the overall hardcover fiction list, but uh, this one is on there at number 30. We gave it a starred review. It's her second book, uh, her second collection of comics, sequel to uh, Hark a Vagrant, which was uh, also the name of her blog. I've been following her comics for years, and they're oh, just really? wonderful. It's a wonderful yeah. mix of, of history and total irreverence. Right. And um, this one has a fabulous cover illustration of a velocipedienne, as uh, early bicycle <laughs> riding women were called when they were seen as absolute menaces no to kidding. society. Oh, um, and so she, she skewers gender roles from... The you know, the distant past to the present day. And uh, we say that uh, from Julius Caesar to the secret garden and from the late romantics to Kokoro, Beaton just knocks it out of the park, having a go at anything and everything with her razor sharp wit. Uh, so uh, that's at number 30 on the hardcover fiction list. Oh, sounds all great. Yeah, so uh, quite quite a good list this week. Um, I really do personally recommend that Kate and Beaton book. I just I just love her stuff, and she's touring right now, doing a, a bunch of different readings and events. You wouldn't think that readings from comics would work, but yeah, they really do. Yeah. <laughs> a a <laughs> projector and a little bit of wry humor goes. Oh, sure, sure, a long way. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Ron Stodgill tells us how things are changing at historically black colleges and universities. We'll be right back. I'm Naomi Jackson, author of The Star Side of Bird Hill, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Ron Stodgill on the line. His new book is Where Everybody Looks Like Me, at the crossroads of America's black colleges and culture. Hi, Ron. So glad you could join us. Oh, thank you, Rose and Mark. I appreciate it. So you teach at Johnson C. Smith University, which is an historically black university in North Carolina. Was there an event that made you decide to write this book? Well, I can't say that there was anything, you know, apocalyptic that happened that, that spurred the book, but I can say that having spent a career as a journalist and um, working in national and um, local newspapers and magazines, you know, I'm always looking for the story. And I left the newsroom um, maybe three years ago and took a role as a professor here at uh, Johnson C. Smith. And, you know, it was very clear to me that these uh, institutions, which I knew something about, although I did not attend um, a historically black college, you know, but my folks all did. I mean, you talk about any sort of educated person born, you know, prior to 
1968, you know, probably attended one. And we owe much of our middle classness, you know, certain families to this group of people. Mine actually went to Tennessee State in Nashville, you know, and migrated um, north to, um, you know, work there. That's my grandmother, particularly as a school teacher, you know, in Detroit. And so, you know, and I have a long, um, you know, a lineage of, of, of um, Tennessee State Tigers in my in my family. So coming here, you know, I, I, I understood a little bit about the romance of these schools, but I could also see that they were um, kind of becoming uh, what would I like skeletons of their former self. That to me. Um, start with the making of something that just has intrigued me to write about. So tell us a little bit about this this skeleton image, um, which is fascinating. These colleges and universities, some of them have been around for a very long time, existing in in kind of much the same way. What's happening now? What's different now? Well, I mean, you gotta, you know, these schools were were founded, you know, right around um, the, at the you know, end of the, the post-Civil War schools, really, and they were uh, founded by mostly, you know, white missionaries and philanthropists to to educate freed slaves, you know. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, and they sort of started to blossom over time through that century. And, and, and uh, so some of them are about 150 uh, years old, you know, um, and uh, they were the institutions that were kind of the the bedrock of of you know American or African American education, you know, the passport to freedom. And so you know they educated a, a Booker T. Washington, a Martin Luther King Jr., a Thurgood Marshall, even an Oprah Winfrey, and a, and a Spike Lee. You know, um, so. They are the, um, you know, the the sort of go-to for 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 black education and and and, and uh, throughout the century, and so today you're just seeing, you know, along with higher ed generally, which are all sort of taking a hit, but these schools with that unique mission of of, of educating uh, first generation, um, you know, um, black. Um, people, first-generation college, black um, citizens, you know, they had been, so, you know, integration is one trend that's that's hurt them. In, in, a, in a way, you know, the irony is you could say, like, well, if the schools really, really did well, that they would kind of put themselves out of business eventually. So, you know, you have more and more um, blacks that, that, that can go anywhere to school. Now that, you know, the, um, now that uh, you know, segregation is over, so, so to speak. You know, they can go. They don't have to go to, to uh, you know, Morehouse or Fisk. They can go to Princeton or University of Michigan or, you know, they have options. And then you've got, um, you know, movement in, in Washington and even under, you know, ironically, you know, under President Obama of just sort of cost-cutting at the federal level or, or, or be holding schools more accountable for the funds that they do receive. And um, so there's been that. There's the changes in the credit standards from which, you know, that all kind of was tied into the implosion of the 
the, the, the banking crisis, right? And, and they changed, the banks changed the credit standards and that disproportionately hit um, families, you know, of, uh, lower income families of African American descent. So suddenly, you know, the school, these kids that have been, you know, getting these, this financial aid couldn't afford to go anymore. So that's another um, um, thing. And then you just have other stuff that they could just do better, like just supporting their own schools, um, you know, through just alumni support. So, you know, you've got a, a, a kind of, um, no, I and mean, I failed to mention just on a state level, state government level, you know, because half of the schools probably, almost roughly half are private and then roughly half are public. So the public ones, you know, they have this, there is this sense of like, why do we need these schools? And if you're not going to be competitive, you know, if you're not, you know, if you don't have any real economy to scale and we already have these mainstream institutions, let's consolidate you, you know, consolidate the three or four that exist in the state, you know, or if you, or, or, or better, or fold them into the main, and fold them into the predominantly white schools or just, you know, if you're really not competitive, just let it sort of, you know, atrophy and, and, and die and shut it down. So I wanted to ask you, you you've been talking about the uh, the decline of these schools and, and have given a lot of very good reasons. But I, I want to get a feeling as to how many historically black colleges and universities they, there are. And are they mostly located in the South? Tell us a little bit about them. Sure, sure. Um, there, there are about 105 of them, right? And you're absolutely right. They are located in the South, uh, predominantly Southeast. But they probably, you know, they're as far north as like Pennsylvania, and they stretch out as far west as say, I think there's one in um, in in Oklahoma. Um, there, you know, a couple of them in Texas, but most of them are in, you know, Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi and the Carolinas. Yeah, yeah, in Florida. In Florida, um, and they're all, you know, and they're all there. You know, they're graduate. There's some graduate programs. You know, there's really not a monolith. I mean, I'm talking about them in, in, in somewhat generalizations. You know, there's theological schools. You know, there's the, the, you know there's they're under there's private. Some of them are uh, open access, so to speak, and some of them are highly selective. You know, um, and like I mentioned, some private, others public. You had also mentioned something interesting uh, about one of the reasons why enrollment is down is dropping and and you were saying that the cuts to funding so uh you had mentioned that it was basically first generation kids going to college um from from possibly poor lower income families who were going there and who were being hit by this are, are there still a, a, a sizable number of say middle class upper upper middle class african american families applying and attending Oh, wow. Yeah. You know what? One of the things that just was really cool about the research is that, you know, the legacy family that just are committed to the school, there is this sense, and it's a misnomer, you know, that um, that to go to these schools simply means that you can't afford to go somewhere else or that you weren't competitive enough academically to go somewhere else. And that is just not 
true. You know, there are so many people who are fit. Like, I mean, even Dr. King, when he went to Morehouse College and graduated, he was, I think as a freshman, he was sort of like third generation, third or fourth generation Morehouse on his mother's side, you know? And so, you know, there are um, one of the stories I tell is about a woman. Um, it, it's really about, um, in the story, one of the narratives is about kind of a, a, as a trustee at Howard University named Renee Higginbotham Brooks and her sort of crusade to to push out the president who she thought was doing a really poor job, um, Sidney Rabot, and her kind of, uh, her, her rogue journey into doing that and, and part of her motivation was she was a Howard graduate there's so many families and you know um, so many people in her family that are Howard graduates and just and historically black colleges generally and she just was afraid to see her you know um, her her alma mater just sort of um, what she felt was sort of being poorly managed and, and led and so um, and she is you know, not kind of a, a statistical outlier, you know, she is part of a, a real core group that keep these, these institutions sort of vital and proud. Yeah. So you interviewed quite a lot of people, professors, students. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the other folks you interviewed, like uh, Savannah Bowen, who is a student athlete, uh, at, uh, yes, yes. I I tried to sort of offer a, a real um, eclectic mix of of people that make this community, that make up this community, and uh, and tell different types of stories that I think are urgent for right now. So I just mentioned Renee because she was part of a kind of push to reinvent these schools and, and, and asked the tough questions and she went up against the old boys, you know, in order to, to, to make it happen. And she went up against the board chair, you know, Barry Rand, who had run Xerox and AARP and, you know, and, and Avis, you know, top, top executive. It was a, a really formidable rival in that. But um, she became kind of his, you know, uh, a, a real, real, um, you know, foe of his, but, you know, yes. And then you have go drop down to a young, you know, Savannah Bowen who had come up, you know, um, dad, a doctor, you know, both parents in, in, in medicine and grew up in an affluent uh, area in Westchester County and wound up, uh, you know, and was recruited by all the top white schools, you know, um, but in the end chose Howard, which was her dad's alma mater, but, you know, the turning point happened, you know, she grew up around all whites, but the turning point happened in during her senior year and when she got her first black teacher, mm. you know, and that teacher was trying to, was teaching, you know, like Toni Morrison's Beloved and, um, and, and, and a few other black um, novelists, you know, that was just sort of what she was covering during the scope of the the class and she found like it started this it triggered all of these awkward feelings with her white classmates because she found that they or she that they kind of resented taking the course you know that they were or, or covering that sort of black um cultural you know um, um you know black literature you know that they 
that they were bored, that they were dismissive. And I think she resented it because she was found it to be absolutely compelling because it spoke to her personally. And so it's about, you know, that is about her journey, you know, to sort of say, okay, you know, well, maybe I'm not going to follow you all to these schools. Maybe there's something, you know, else in my development that I want to go touch. And so she wound up at Howard. And then I have, you know, everybody in the book is not black, though. Like, I have some very cool stories about a woman who's an event planner in Baton, in not Baton Rouge, in New Orleans, who now runs, which is, it's the Bayou Classic, which is a Thanksgiving Day annual football game between Grambling and Southern. And it's been going on forever, and it's super popular, but it got very dusty and tired and folks just stopped going for a number of reasons, right? And so she was brought in to sort of rejuvenate it because she's very good at her job. But, you know, as a white woman taking on this black classic, you know, she found herself sort of struggling, you know, uh, when, you know, blacks resent her because they don't feel like she understands the culture and how she sort of got the steering wheel of this big classic. And then you've got you know, um, white folks that she's trying now to sort of get interested in this and plug in, and they're looking at her like, you know, sideways. So I find her story to be powerful. You know, I've got, um, you know, the 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 chair of, uh, or the, the president of a couple of, you know, several universities sort of talking about their various challenges, Um whether it was a big, bold move like Beverly Tatum, who ran uh, Spelman College, who looked at, at, at her car. And it's an elite school. You know, Spelman is right up there with Morehouse and and Howard and uh, and Hampton, you know, and Tuskegee. Those are some sort of big kind of sterling names. But she um, she shut down the athletic program because she just needed cost-cutting measures. She looked at the school. I mean, at the at, at how many students were participating in it, you know, and she thought, we spend a million dollars on sports, but, you know, the school is small, um, and they're not, you know, and, and they're not going to wind up going pro, and they're not going to wind up, you know, and very few students really participate in it. You know, they're uh, we're not that competitive. And so, you know, why not just cut this and just, like, you know, why not do a wellness center? You know, the the, the average um, female here is going to wind up doing Pilates and yoga and stuff like that. And so, you know, it was a pretty bold move. And she saved money, and I think she's really tailored the product to the reality of the, of the young women's lives. That, coincidentally, is the school that Bill Cosby, you know, um, had given... Um, twenty million dollars. Bill and Camille Cosby would give twenty million dollars at school. Um, you know, and endowed it back in the late eighties. They recently um, gave that money back because of the Bill Cosby, um, you know, scandal and all of the, you know, the just negative um, attention he has gotten. And 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 I spoke, spent a time with him. I really struggled with what to do with the Bill Cosby stuff, you know, because I did spend a lot of time talking to him prior to all of this, you know, these revelations, and he's such a, um, he's, he's been such a champion of these schools, you know, um, you know, he's given his money and his time, 
And, uh, you know, even as pop kind of, uh, you know, sizzled through, you know, the television show uh, that became a, a big hit. I grew up on the show, uh, A Different World, which takes place at a fictitious, you know, um, HBCU uh, Hillman College. And, um, you know, that show really spiked the numbers on people of, of, of people of color who wanted to even go to these black colleges. Um, and so, you know, but then you kind of, um, you know, weigh that against what what those allegations are. And even in, in, in his own admissions, um, you know, and, 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 and I had a tough, tough call, but I decided to, that I couldn't revise that history that he's in it. And, um, you know, he's play, he had a, an important role in it. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Ron Stodgill, author of Where Everybody Looks Like Me, who's telling us about some fascinating research he did for this book on historically black colleges and universities. So as a professor at an HBCU, are there ways that you can teach there that you couldn't elsewhere? What's the benefit for you being on the the professorial side of things? Sure. I mean, you know, I think like I remember one day I sat down with another professor because we had um, we both knew a, a, a particular student, and we thought that, that student, you know, had been a little more like just sort of disconnected of late. And so we sat down and we had a discussion about this student, and we, um, and I think we must have spent forty five, fifty minutes talking about the, their works, and talking about their future, and talking about what we knew about what they were going through. And it hit me after that conversation, you know, that I can't, I went to, you know, University of Missouri, um, Columbia, and while I loved it and got a lot out of it, you know, I don't think that anybody sat down in all four years, I would doubt that sort of 50 minutes or an hour of just Ron time got spent you know, mm-hmm. and I think that that is one of the benefits, you know, of these, these, these um, of coming here is that at a very, very critical point in your development where, you know, one long move can just take you so far left or right, you know, um, that, that you have someone watching pretty closely and that, that nurturing, I think is, is, can be an important uh, element as you as you leave high school, you know. Um, I have three sons, my um, and my uh, oldest, you know, just went off to to college. He's eighteen. He did not go to an HBCU, although I took him shopping. You know, mm-hmm. he went to Howard and he went to North Carolina um, Central and A and T, and he took some looks, but he just in the end didn't choose one. But you know, I worry. I worry about him. He, has, he is at a small uh, liberal arts school in North Carolina, 
but I worried about that transition, you know, of, of him going and making the wrong mistake that he can't, um, you know, that he can't recover from and that it happens in sort of obscurity, you know, without anyone that feels like they could just reach out to me directly. So these schools do kind of take pride in, in, in a family, a family atmosphere. And I've seen it played out. I mean, it's very real, you know, um, in, 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 um, you know, what ends up happening is you've got all these ambitious people, you know, that show up at 18 and they get to know one another. And so now they leave at 21. And by the time they're sort of like in their late thirties or forties, if things have worked out, they're doing very well in their careers, you know? And so, you know, and they're all over the country. And so, you know, rather than come in, go somewhere and kind of fight it out, you know, and you, you already got this little connection, you know, and, 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 and a common sort of family ethic and they look out for one another. So, you know, those relationships that are formed there start, you know, and it goes through, you know, weddings. And I mean, I'm sure it's the same thing as in mainstream culture. It's just a little niche. It's a little niche that is, is, that you know is um, gives per- a person a whole a whole life, but there's an academic, you know, and professional sort of part of that that that's powerful and that you know and that um, is is contagious. So, what do you see as the future of of the HBCU? I mean, how, how do you think HBCUs will need to change uh, to stay vibrant and viable? Well, I think that, you know, that, that many of them are, are already vibrant and, and, and viable. Um, but I do think that, um, that you know, some reinventing is going to be necessary. I think that, first of all, they're going to have to start really looking at funding themselves and having the people, um, you know, that went there give back in a more generous way. You know, um, they're going to have to truly, truly um, carry more weight on, on, on the giving end. Um, you know, I also think that, you know, that, that, that on a customer service level, you know, they uh, often, you know, the students have been left wanting, you know, in terms of the, the efficiency of, of, of registering and just sort of like the whole business side of these schools, which has a direct connection actually to the giving portion. Because if you're experienced in sort of how it was managed and they managed your money and resources and things like that while you were at school, if that memory is sort of tainted, then you're less likely, no matter how much you love them, to sort of trust them but with your with the resources when you start making them. You know, I think they'll probably also have to start kind of doing more with um, with you know online learning and figuring out a way to um, you know where appropriate to to do that um, and take advantage of the kind of digital era technological era we we live in and I think ultimately to take a really hard look at at like consolidating at, in certain cases and, and just you know enjoying some economies of scale and, 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 and turning some of these schools maybe into centers of excellence that, you know, one giant, you know, of, of, a, of an umbrella, 
you know, and and smaller satellite campuses so that the Davids can compete against the Goliaths, right? I have a question. What is the percentage of non-black students who who attend these colleges or universities? It's it's really um, it's still mostly under ten percent, but it is growing. You know, I mean that is a is a very very good point, um, Mark. That 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 one of the strategies is to start opening doors up to other students. You know. Um, that are not descendants of, of, of slaves, you know, which had always been the mission of the HBCU. I mean, here at Johnson C. Smith, you know, we have more and more we have, and, 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 and I'm very close to many of them. We have a lot of students from South Africa. We have, um, you know, one in particular who's uh, very a favorite of mine, who was, uh, and she's in the book, Lillian. Um, who is, um, you know, an aspiring dentist, but she's a Rwandan refugee, you know. Um, we have many from, from, from um, you know, the, that, that are West Indian. Uh, and so um, more and more, you know, it, 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 it's one way to attract a different, a, a different pool of students, you know, and, and bring them up because it's in fact, it's in fact, you know the the top notch high school you know black high school graduate can now go to Harvard or Yale and he's being recruited heavily by these schools and these schools have the resources in which to court him you know so that leaves kind of a that brain drain if you will leads to you know this sort of gap you know a performance gap so how do you fill that and so in a lot of ways you know these schools are filling it with really talented international students um and so you know that is a that is a trend and more latino students here on on johnson c smith and it's created a rich diverse more diverse environment you know but the rub though obviously is that you still have an african-american you know student who who um um, you know, who, and there's a lot of work left to do with that first generation, uh, you know, um, um, African American student as well. And, 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 and so, you know, are they being kind of, are their needs now being, you know, neglected as you, you know, scurry to figure out, um, another kind of core customer, if you will. I was wondering about that, too, because every time you say first generation, I automatically complete it with immigrant because that's that's the uh, context in which I'm used to hearing the term first generation, these first generation immigrants to the U.S. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so uh, it sounds like that's a very natural direction for the HBCUs to go in. Yeah, I mean, that is that that is kind of the secret sauce, if you will, you know, at the schools. It's the conceit, you know, that they can come in and take these students who, you know, who don't come at, from any privilege, you know, um, and, and, and whose, you know, sort of ancestors were not um, uh, formally educated. And yet, you know, within four years, they can have them ready for the workplace, or, or graduate school, and they've done that over and again, and and they, so there's a that's a competency of these schools, and so absolutely, you know, can, does that is that a transferable skill? 
you know, um, uh, to, to help them become competitive. Yeah, I, I see it happening right now. Mm-hmm. We've been talking with Ron Stodgill, and you can find his book, Where Everybody Looks Like Me, in stores right now. Ron, thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rose, and thank you, Mark. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed tells us why Oyster is tanking. Stay tuned. I'm Buzz Bissinger, the author of Friday Night Lights, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed is here to tell us all about what's happening with ebook subscription services. Hi, Calvin. Hey, you guys. How you doing? It's always so great to have you on the show. So um, these ebook subscription services are really struggling. They're having some trouble. Tell us what's going on. Well, you know, it's interesting you characterize it that way. This is a moment for ebook subscriptions. I mean, we're here talking about this today because the waters have been roiled. Um, Oyster, which was really one of the, I guess, the most highly regarded of the ebook subscription services, mm-hmm. um, suddenly we find out that uh, basically a big chunk of their staff um, is leaving to join Google. Mm. Uh, really, Google Play. We discovered this actually through a um, a note on the Oyster blog, which basically sort of said, um, "Hey, we you know we've changed reading, um, but oh by the way, we're sunsetting uh, the service, and anybody who'd like a <laughs> refund, let us know." So that doesn't sound like a note from a going concern. So right. uh, we realize that they are shutting down services. Um, ebook su- subscription, its business model uh, has been a little shaky. However, um, ebook subscription services, and this is essentially the book publishing variation on Netflix uh, mm-hmm. and other kinds of you know rent you don't own kind of services that seem to be very popular among consumers. I mean, it, it was the the um, the book publishing variety where you pay a relatively reasonable monthly fee. I think Oysters was nine ninety five a month, and you get access to. Just an ocean of books. I mean, for them, they built up from about 500,000 titles to a million. Uh, they had three of the big five publishers in. Uh, their big, their competitor is Scribd, and we'll mm. talk more about Scribd in, in a second. Yeah. But, um, but this, this business model, both for accessing content and for how it pays publishers to give up this access, has really been under debate. Uh, you know, probably for two or three years, ebook subscription services actually are. There are a number of them actually for children's, mm. um, usually for children's ebook apps, yeah. or rather apps. Um, but for adult mass market trade, it's been an issue. However, since this is happening in every other part of the culture, it's got to come to trade book publishing too. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it went from about two or three years ago being uh, agents sort of saying, there's no way, uh, it's not going to happen, I, we don't even think publishers have the right, this is a sub-right that needs to be negotiated, right. blah, 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 uh, they can't do this without coming to us, to suddenly, actually, publishers, b- very big publishers, uh, Kensington, um, uh, SNS. 
uh, HarperCollins in particular, being all in. Um, at a certain point, even the agents stopped complaining about it. And part of the reason is this. These book services looking to build audiences, looking to make their services attractive to consumers, as well as attractive to publishers to give them content, basically went in with a model that lets them pay publishers and, and eventually authors, essentially as a, a purchase of a physical book. If, uh, if a, an ebook uh, subscription subscriber reads a certain percentage of the book, you know, I've heard different numbers, some say it's 10%, whatever, then it's treated as, as a sale. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, as you walked into Barnes & Noble and bought the book, and the payout to publishers mm-hmm. and the royalty to artists continues apace. Publishers like this. Sure. Authors like this. Agents like this. Uh, and all of a sudden, um, the objections to the model seemed to disappear. A lot of publishers were signing up. Three of the big five, I'm forgetting who's not in, uh, um, although Pingham Random House is one of them. They've mm. been very clear that they wanted to, as Random House, or excuse me, as Pingham Random House always does, they sort of wait to see how, how things settle out before they jump in. Nevertheless, they've got big publishers. They've got thousands of small publishers. And they were attracting readers, and the competition to Oyster Scribd also, bearing in mind the Scribd has a legacy business. They existed before the ebook subscription mm-hmm. um, right. fad, if you want to call it that, started. Uh, you know, they were a documents business. They were fairly successful at it. They draw huge traffic. They transformed themselves into an ebook service. And these two companies kind of have been sort of dueling, dueling announcements. You know, we get uh, a press release from one. I'm almost guaranteed I'll get a press release from the other one the next week. Um, so they've been very competitive. They've signed up pretty much the same publishers. Uh, they have slightly different services. Scribd added audiobooks and comics. Mm. Oh, wow. You know, in right. fact, 10,000 comics and graphic novels. Right. Oyster added Pottermore, uh, exclusive arrangement with the Pottermore and Harry Potter. And uh, they had a couple of them. And they also were very... Uh, Oyster was very good at adding what I think are sort of ancillary services but kind of kind of cool uh for instance there's a lot of discussion that backlit mobile devices like ipads you know are you know are hard to read on some people don't like them uh uh, there's research that says they keep you up at night you know they added some technology that's to address that so they've been very competitive but they both have a similar model in that they pay out based on how much people read and then they pay based mm, right. as if with a physical book. The information that we're getting here is that, uh, from our sources, is that Oyster was on the brink of basically failing. It's a tough business. The model um, means they pay out a lot. Why was the business failing then, if it seemed? Uh, well, you, you know, basically what it is, that the cost of basically getting subscribers and the cost of paying, you know, paying publishers is out of whack. A number of other ebook subscribers in this space, and there are some smaller ones that we've talked to, they also have gone to this particular model. They're not happy with it. The problem is, is this is what publishers and agents want. And one of the uh, services that I, who I talked to, um, uh, Justo Hidalgo, mm. who is the CEO of 24 Symbols, a much smaller service that's available in the U.S., but that primarily, I think, is its biggest growth has been in Europe. He uses the same model as, as Oyster, and he had to switch to that to grow his business. He had a couple hundred publishers involved when he um, and paying uh, pay uh, per page read. Mm. 
the publishers weren't happy to be involved until, or specifically the bigger publishers, until he went to the same model that Oyster has. Because you're paying out a pretty good amount of money. And yeah. I've heard Steve Zacharias at Kensington, other representatives of SNS and other publishers really talk about, hey, this is great. And this is why. And I should get into the point of what its successes were. It's attracting consumers who we live in an age of, you know, you don't have to own it. You can rent it. When price is no consideration, when you don't have to decide, do I really want to pay $9.99, for the next book I read, publishers were getting very, very interesting information about what consumers want to read. So it's acting as both a discovery mechanism Mm. while it's also providing revenue. So this is great on a lot of accounts, obviously, for publishers. But I do think that the ebook subscription services see this uh, not as an, a sustainable mm-hmm. business model. Yeah. I mean, if, how much are the subscription fees? That's the real question. Uh, yeah. The subscription fees are typically low because subscription fees invariably are low. That's right. how you aggregate consumers. Um, but maybe they're too low. Yeah, I think, uh, as I said before, I think Oysters is nine ninety five a month, unlimited access to a million titles, mm. primarily backlist, but some, you know, sort of pseudo front so, list. So the look on my face is these people have never met genre fiction readers. No, and you're a good point. <laughs> and this is a good point for you to bring up. Uh, really, about two months ago, Scrib, uh, which once again has a legacy business to help it in this, in, unlike uh, Oyster, Scrib decided to basically eliminate romance. Because they can't afford it. Because if if you tell a romance reader, pay nine ninety nine a month for unlimited books, they're in heaven. <laughs> she, she she is going to read two hundred books a month. Oh, and, easily. You know, and I'm not. I'm I'm really barely exaggerating here. Well, romance. no, you're you're not exaggerating at all. As it was described to us, uh, they were reading script out of house and home. Yeah. Uh, wow. um, and it's very interesting. You also mentioned I've been talking with some of the manga publishers who had told mm. me that. They have been approached by various um, subscription services, and uh, their take was that if they think romance readers are eating, reading them out of house and home, wait till they meet manga readers. Offer you know, <laughs> you know, offer a lot of manga for nine ninety nine yeah. a month. Believe me, yeah. So yeah, no, wow. So, but everybody agrees that this model has to be tweaked. Mm-hmm. The, tr- the, the trick is how. We're hearing a lot of discussion in the wake of the Oyster. Because really what we're hearing, and I should back up just a second, what we're hearing now is that Oyster was really about to go out of business anyway, that it looks as though this is a higher situation, not necessarily an acquisition situation. We'll find out. Well, I was going to say, we'll go back to Google, which is how you started, how we started this conversation. Yeah, I mean, nobody knows. We're just speculating. um, But our sources tell us that, you know, they were going out of business one way or the other. Right. Uh, So we don't know whether Google Play wants to get into this business or not. We'll find out. But we do know that, and and from talking with a variety of people around the business, that one, ebook subscription services are attracting consumers that if there's unlimited access, the data on their reading habits is is impressive. And I heard this from um, Carolyn Reedy, the SNS CEO, uh, really about a week ago at the Book Industry Study Group annual meeting, where she talked at quite length about what was happening with ebook subscription and how much she thought it was a good thing that they're in with their backlist, that they're getting great data on on reading habits, uh, that it provides revenue, and that that the consumers were indeed 
making really interesting choices because they didn't have to worry about how much it cost. Mm. Which is a great point that I haven't heard anyone else yeah. make about these subscription services is what that what that does really for freedom of reading choice. A- absolutely. And and this is what I mean, this is the goal, this is the the holy grail to to come up with something that introduces readers to new books. Books that they hadn't thought that they necessarily wanted to read. Right. Mm. So uh, now, on the other hand, the business model is such that it, it it's not necessarily working well for the ebook subscription services themselves, and, and that was essentially the point that that um, Mr. Hidalgo from Twenty Four Symbols made. And once again, he went from uh, um, a page per read situation, and this is, if I may say so, Kindle Unlimited, which is Amazon's subscription service, though it's primarily books that are self-published through Amazon, right. uh, because publishers are, are interested in any kind of new retail sales outlet mm-hmm. that doesn't involve Amazon. They switched also from a per-page uh, fee to, well, to a different kind of situation, and they also have, um, hmm. um, they, also, they also use a pool situation that's a little different. Yeah. You know, there's a certain pool of money that they designate and they pay out from that to the authors. There are a variety of things on the table to make this thing work. Uh, Mr. Hidalgo's take was that, look, publishers want this. They want a new channel. They want it to be viable. Uh, They want, uh, to some extent, they want the data. Publishers praise the data. I'm not sure how much they actually want to pay for it. Uh, uh, These days, publishers are getting data from other ways right. even from just downloadable ebooks but his point was that we've shown that this can be a viable retail channel for publishers publishers need to decide if they want to come to us with or not so much come to us but if they will agree to some kinds of terms that are win-win for the industry and not win-lose the loser being not the publishers. <laughs> right. Uh, right. And their authors as well. And that's something that the authors are concerned, the agents are concerned about, the publishers are concerned about, that they're not, um, that their authors are being uh, compensated fairly. Well, it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Maybe a year or two from now, someone will have done something so radical and we'll be thinking, why didn't it work that way all along? Oh, yeah. Well, just stay tuned. Believe me, there's more to come on yeah. this particular topic. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Calvin. It's always great to have you on the show. Well, thanks for having me here. And now a final word from our sponsors. I'm Naomi Novik, author of Uprooted, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with David J. Peterson, author of The Art of Language Invention. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 